Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So before carrying on with the, with the Four Noble Truths that we began to look at yesterday afternoon, I'd, I'd first like to just say a few words about the, um, the insight that the Buddha records um, as what happened to him under the Bodhi tree. Um, this would have been probably a couple of months before he actually started to teach. And traditionally, it marks the moment where he uh, woke up. In other words, he ceased to be someone uh, struggling to resolve the questions that his life presented him. And achieved some kind of breakthrough. Now the tradition presents this as a very uh, sudden rupture with his uh, previous way of seeing things that um, accords very much with the sorts of descriptions we get of people throughout human culture having spent some time in a state of struggle of uh, uncertainty, uh, of questioning, and then at a certain moment, there being a kind of a breakthrough. Now, whether or not it actually happened like that or not, we don't really know. Whether it was a more gradual process, or whether it really was, as the story or the legend tells us, something utterly abrupt and sudden and unexpected, who knows? I suspect, in fact, it was probably more of a gradual process than the tradition uh, represents. But we'll leave that for another time. Uh, The point is that when he comes to tell others of his experience, um, and he does talk about this in in a couple of places in the canon, the, the passage that I prefer to uh, rely upon comes from a text called the Arya Pariyesana Sutta. It means the, the Discourse on the Noble Quest. And it's number 26 of the, the middle-length discourses. And it's one of the few texts where the Buddha actually tells his own story, to, talks about himself reflectively. 
And when he comes to describe his experience beneath the tree, his awakening, although curiously in this text, he doesn't use the word awakening or bodhi. Um, this, this, is what, this is what he says. It all boils down to just one short paragraph. He says, this Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground, the this conditioned, conditioned arising, and also hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. Were I to teach this Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. <laughs> In other words, it would be a big hassle. <laughs> now what is, um, I think there are a number of things that are striking in this passage. One is that he does not use the word a truth of having understood the truth nor does he use a word uh, that has its root in the Sanskrit Pali uh, nya, to know he's not describing that he's come to know something that is true which is again a fairly standard expectation we might have of someone who's arrived at some great realization he's known something now to be true. He doesn't describe it in those terms at all. Rather, he describes his uh, initial um, uh, shift, uh, his initial awakening, as a movement from preoccupation with a place to the seeing of a ground. In other words, he is quite literally uh, presenting this as a kind of existential shift from one perspective which is focused around a preoccupation with place to another perspective which is an understanding or a seeing as he says of something rather more fundamental that, that he calls a tanna a ground um, again, this is probably a play on the, the, uh, the idea in, in, you get in the Upanishads where Brahman is described as the Adishtana, the foundation of all things, this sort of transcendent ground of being. What the Buddha describes as the ground is the very opposite of that. It's actually this contingent, phenomenal world that he describes as ida pachayata paticha samupada 
the this conditioned, conditioned arising. Now, what he means by ida uh, pachayata, this conditioned, or the this conditionality, is the uh, way in which one particular specific thing gives rise to another particular specific thing according to a process that he describes as dependent arising or conditioned emergence, dependent origination. Paticca samupada. And so his, his awakening begins with this movement away from his, uh, an obsession with a particular fixed point, what he calls a, a place, an alaya, which is actually also could be translated as, as a foundation or a basis, to something rather more uh, fundamental, and yet that fundamental reality is not something that is other than this world. This world of causes and effects, of things coming into being out of conditions, and then in itself becoming a condition for something else. And this, I feel, is very much at the, at the heart of the whole Buddhist understanding of the world, as well as the uh, practice that then develops out of that. It's a, it, it is a, a very significant departure from a practice of, of meditation or, or religion that has as its, as its tanang, as its ground, something transcendent, something absolute, something divine or sacred that is at the origin of the world but is not the world itself. The Buddha completely relinquishes any such language. And of course in doing so, he relinquishes the idea that the self, me, in what, in my truest, deepest uh, uh, sense, is somehow identical to this ground. That there is a kind of divine um, underpinning to my identity um, that is identical to the divine underpinning of the world. So there's something radically uh, phenomenological about the Buddha's awakening. By phenomenological, we're referring to this word phenomenon, which in Greek uh, comes from a, a term that means to appear. Appearances. What is apparent? In other words, phenomenology is a concern with what is apparent to our senses, to our minds, without any uh, assumption of there being something grander or greater or truer that lies behind appearance and somehow props it up. In that sense, the Buddha is the first phenomenologist. His vision of the world and the human being's place within it is phenomenological. He's only concerned, or what he's woken up to in a sense, is the fact that the, the, this open field of conditioned and contingent, impermanent, 
and dukkha-ridden events is actually all there is, or that's all that we can know about with any certainty. He abandons the idea of anything that transcends that, any, any deeper or truer reality. But at the same time, this understanding that he's arrived at is not something that is just a kind of intellectual acknowledgement that, oh yes, this is the way it is, as a philosopher, for example, might arrive at. But he arrives at it from um, a very different pers uh, subjective perspective. And that's why he talks about this ground as twofold. One he describes as the conditioned process of the world itself. And the other he describes as the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. That is also a tannam, a ground. And this is um, an interior state of having reached a point where he's no longer driven by his attachments, by his fears, by his egotistic ambitions, by his aversions or resentments. All of that habitual process of, of behavior, of feeling, of thinking, has somehow come to a stop. And it's in that stopping that the world is then revealed to him as being fundamentally contingent, fundamentally conditional. The two have to go together. And we'll see how this then is played out in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Now, it's in this, um, in, in reflecting on this experience, that the Buddha uses this rather well-known expression, um, a going against the stream, Pati Sotagami. He says, those, he, he, he says, why should I now reveal what I reached with such difficulty? This Dhamma, and by Dhamma here he means Paticca Samupada, this condition arising, is not easily awoken to by those in thrall to desire and hate. Again, that's the other side of it. If, if you're still caught up in your attachments and your fears and your desires, you won't see this. You have to somehow go beyond or transcend those habits of mind. Such people will not see what goes against the stream. Subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. Goes against the stream. I think a modern way in which we would express that idea is counterintuitive. That um, rather than arriving at some sort of transcendent reality, the Buddha actually arrives at a radically new understanding of the phenomenal world itself. It's not what would have been expected of someone in his period of time, but nor, I think, is this sort of um, experience expected in terms of our own kind of intuitive or 
instinctive sense of, of who we really are. I think all of us, or probably, have this feeling that deep down within us somewhere, there is a kind of a permanent witness to things that doesn't budge, that doesn't shift, that's always been there. I have the inescapable sense that the person who uh, played with his little toys at the age of five or six is exactly the same person who's speaking to you now. Now, I know that that can't be true because every cell in my body has changed many times since then. That my mind, my uh, personality, my character have evolved and developed from my childhood until now. That my physical appearance is completely different. There's nothing that I can point to in any kind of sense that has remained the same. And yet I have this, this very deep uh, conviction. It's, it's not even a conviction. It seems obvious that there's something uh, within me that has not changed. Uh, and, that's, and that has somehow peered out of this body in a, uh, in, in a fixed and uh, constant way. And I think the Buddha saw through that, which I think is quite remarkable, really, because it's that sense, I think, that gives uh, the lie to what becomes fundamental in most religious teachings, namely that there is such a permanent witness or soul or observer who's not subject to change, not subject to birth and death and coming and going, conditioned arising, but is somehow outside of that. And this was probably the Buddha's biggest insight in a way, that this uh, sense we have of who we are is actually false. Now whether or not that will actually disappear, I doubt very much. It seems, and I think from our contemporary understanding, would be something that is kind of hardwired into our neurobiology. There may be moments, maybe moments such as the Buddha had beneath the Bodhi tree, maybe moments that we have in, in deep meditation, or simply moments that sort of come upon us out of the blue sometimes, in which we are suddenly struck by the profoundly contingent and impermanent and fluid nature of our experience. But I think for most of the time, we're kind of uh, locked into this a priori assumption of being someone who's always there, unaffected, as it were, by what goes on, simply a knower of it. I think in some ways, what the Buddha did for the self is a bit like what Copernicus did for the earth. In other words, he restored it to its proper place. Copernicus realized that contrary to all experience, it's not the earth that stands still and the sun goes around, but rather it's the other way around. The sun is still and the earth is moving. But that doesn't mean that Copernicus suddenly felt himself moving around all the time. It's not as though Copernicus then inhabited a world where the sun was still and he and, he and the earth were going round it. 
in his everyday experience, things would not have budged much at all. The sun would still rise in the east and set in the west. But he knew, hopefully he knew deep down, but I think he probably knew it through his mathematical calculations, that in fact that wasn't true. And of course a lot of science uh, arrives at similar counterintuitive um, understandings. Scientists know that this chair I'm sitting on is something like 95% space. Now that's certainly not the experience I'm having right now. <laughs> and I doubt it's the experience that most scientists have either. It still feels just as solid, but we know that in fact it's very unsolid. In other words, what science often leads us to are highly counterintuitive um, uh, understandings of the world, or the idea of curved space. All of this stuff is, is really, really weird. And when we get into the quantum level of reality, it's weirder still. Niels Bohr once said, anyone who claims to understand quantum mechanics clearly has it. <laughs> and I think the Buddha did something similar, but of course using first-person analysis. He didn't have any other methods to his, at his disposal. Somehow he arrived at these conclusions um, through his own analysis of his uh, condition as a human being. And the primary tool, of course, that he used is his own awareness, attention, introspection. And I think we also have to add reason. The Buddha is a great dialectician. When you read these dialogues he has, he's a very astute, rational person. And a lot of his arguments are really based on his uh, seeing through error by means of reasoned uh, argument and dialectic. And I suspect he used a similar sort of reasoned dialectic to examine his own experience. I think it's all these things together, really. So the Buddha, I feel, did not um, uh, suddenly come to an experience in which he did not uh, feel himself to be a constant witness. I suspect that remained much the same. But he now knew, and hopefully he knew this in a very deep, almost intuitive way, that, that, that despite appearances, that was not actually the case. So in other words, he, he relativized um, his understanding of self. He saw that it was a process like any other process, that it was constituted of, of physical, emotional, perceptual, um, motivational, and conscious elements, all of which were fluid and changing. And yet, there remained this appearance of it being static. But that appearance he no longer believed in. He realized that that was simply a fiction that had found its way into our experience um, and would probably continue to persist in that way. But in fact, was not, that was not the case. So that, I think, is where this, um, this uh, awakening begins. But I think it's interesting that he doesn't use the word somebody. 
fully awakened at this point. He then, after a number of weeks, so the tradition says, of hesitation and not knowing quite what to do next, he's inspired, by the, according to the text, by the appearance of a god, Brahma, to go and teach, to go and explain to those who have little dust on their eyes what it is that he has understood. <clears throat> so he gets up from his seat in Bodhgaya and he heads off to Benares, which even in his day was the, the holy city of the Brahmins. And he finds uh, his five former companions in asceticism who were also Brahmins from Sakya, his homeland, in a park outside called the Deer Park in Isipatana or Sanat, and then he begins to teach. And I think it's significant that it's at the end or the conclusion of that discourse that he claims to have achieved a peerless awakening in this world through having um, completed four tasks. That of fully knowing dukkha, having let go of craving, having experienced stopping or cessation, and having cultivated a path. Now, the, well, this is maybe too much of an academic thing. The, the, the question I think we have to, to, to sort of consider, at least briefly, is how does he get from this description of, of, of uh, conditioned arising, which was his initial breakthrough, as it were, to the teaching of the Four Truths? And did that really only take six to eight weeks to work out? <laughs> I think it may have taken longer. I think it might have taken longer. And there are a body of texts in the Pali Canon uh, collected under the title the Sutta Nipata, which literally means the group of discourses, which are a collection of texts that are written in a quite a different language, a much more primitive form of Pali, usually in a certain old-fashioned meter, that um, are broadly considered both by modern scholars and by traditional scholars to be the earliest teachings the Buddha gave. And these are very curious texts. They don't have the, um, the, 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 that quality of almost systematic formulation that we find in this first discourse. So I wonder if they actually represent an initial period of the Buddha's teaching in which record his attempt to try to arrive at a more uh, complete uh, understanding of what the, the implications of conditioned arising or contingency are, which then finally reach a conclusion in the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths. That's a supposition. But frankly, it makes a lot of sense out of the uh, text we find in the Sutta Nipata, and it also helps explain why when we get to the Four Noble Truths, we get a much more systematic te teaching. But however we understand that, I think what is clear is that the Four Noble Truths are a translation of the principle of conditioned arising into a way of life. 
In other words, what starts out as simply the this conditioned, conditioned arising, and then at the same time also this experience of having witnessed that from the perspective of no more craving or grasping, that that evolves into this idea of a practice which entails a radically new way of living in this world. And that, I feel, is what the Four Noble Truths are all about. If we take that um, assumption uh, as being correct, then I think we can see quite clearly how um, the, the structure of the, the first sermon basically is modelled according to a sequence of causes and effects, or one condition giving rise to another, and that then giving rise to something else. And we have, in fact, the, one of the Buddha's most famous um, accounts of, or definitions of conditioned arising, where he says, he's talking to a man called Udayin, who is a, a Jain, he says, let be the past, Udayin. Let be the future. I will teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. Now again, that might sound rather cryptic. <laughs> but it really, in some ways, is just um, a, a, a description of causality. When certain, if, a, if a particular cause exists, then a particular effect will come about. If a particular cause does not exist, then that particular effect will not come about. Again, it sounds simple, and we might even say, well, that's obvious, isn't it? If there's an egg, we'll get a chicken. If there's no egg, we won't get a chicken. So what? What appears, I think, on the surface to be perhaps even simplistic, I think when translated into practice, becomes actually rather profound. What the Buddha is trying to do is not trying to somehow manipulate or force our mind into being more enlightened, but rather he recognizes that the way in which one transforms oneself is by um, understanding what are the conditions for, let's say, a more loving, a more wise way of being, and what are the conditions that do not give rise to that. In other words, we establish the conditions, we work on the conditions, and then the results will take care of themselves. We don't have to willfully try to impose love and compassion and wisdom upon us. That's not going to work. We have to establish uh, what the sources of such values are and put them into practice. To establish them both in ourselves and in our world. So, in that way, we can see how the four truths are a sequence of causes and effects. 
and particularly when we see them not as propositions, in other words, truth claims, that correspond to some reality in the world, there is suffering, the cause of suffering is craving, as though these were things we had to somehow understand and verify, and then we can believe in them. But if we see the four truths as a series of tasks that need to be recognized, performed, and accomplished, which is how the Buddha describes them, then we see that each truth, when recognized, performed, and accomplished, is the cause for the next. And here, and I feel this is a rather uh, an important point, we can see why he laid the four truths out in the sequence he did. Why we start with suffering, then move on to craving, then move on to cessation, and then move on to the path. It's only when we see them as actions does that make sense. That the fully knowing of suffering is the condition that allows the letting go of craving to happen. The letting go of craving is the condition that allows craving to stop. That's fairly obvious. The, the stopping of craving is the condition that allows the Eightfold Path to arise. That's maybe a little less obvious. But I think if we, we look into these four, we'll find that that makes more and more sense. At least that's my, that, that's my belief. And in this way, we can also see how the four truths are simply a teasing out of the principle of when this is, that comes to be. When this is not, that does not come to be. In other words, they are quite literally... Um, an illustration of the primary principle the Buddha understood. I mentioned yesterday, and I suppose I have to come back to it now, I have a suspicion that this doctrine that um, uh, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, the second noble truth is the truth of the origin of suffering. I think that's a later addition. I'm not sure that's what the Buddha meant. And um, one of the dogmas of Buddhism that is very rarely challenged is this dogma, craving is the origin of suffering. Craving is the cause of suffering. Sometimes it's translated, desire is the cause of suffering. Is that true? Well, sometimes, yes, it is. Obviously. I don't think that's a terribly remarkable thing to say. We can, we've all had experience in our lives where we've craved something, desperately craved to possess something or uh, to uh, fall in love with someone or whatever it is, and then at the end of the day it doesn't work out and we experience great grief and misery or the thing that we've, we're attached to, our brand new car gets involved in a nasty accident, or some kid comes along with a coin and scrapes it along the side. And we can say that when we step back a bit, yes, yeah, because of my attachment that I've now experienced so much suffering. That is obviously true. But I think it's a fairly weak explanation. Because when the Buddha talks of suffering, 
he doesn't talk about, you know, superfluous mental grief. He, talk, he, he talks rather more explicitly of this is suffering, he says, birth, aging, sickness, death. And then the text in traditional Buddhism goes on to say, and the cause of that, the origin of that, is craving. Now this is a, a problem in a lot of um, contemporary Buddhist teaching, because people read all this stuff, and then they say, but look, you know, my elderly mother is suffering enormously from old age. In what sense is that the result of her craving? Because the Buddha is quite clear, if we take this in traditional account, it seems to be saying that craving is the cause of old age. You can't, you, can't, you can't deny that. That's what the text says. At least in the classic formulation that I think is a later edition. What does it mean to say that craving is the cause of old age? Now, the standard sort of vipassana response is to say, well, what it, it doesn't mean that it is literally the cause of old age. What it means is that a person who does not accept their aging as a reality who uh, is constantly fighting and struggling and denying the reality of old age, craves still to be young, craves not to suffer the deterioration of the body, that that craving gives rise to unnecessary or superfluous mental anxiety and grief and frustration and despair. In that sense, that, that person's craving as an old person is the cause of their suffering. Well, that, again, is, to some extent, true. In fact, it's obviously true. I've seen it with my old mum. And she craves not to be old, and that causes her a lot of suffering because, whether she likes it or not, she is old. <laughs> She's very, very old. <laughs> but I don't feel it's a very uh, compelling um, explanation of why the Buddha said that craving is the origin, not just... A, 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 you know, not, not just some minor cause, but he says it's the samudaya, the, the source or the origin of old age. I think the only way that can make sense, and this is what tradition says, is that craving is the origin of old age because craving is what drives the process of rebirth. In other words, if you die and you've still got loads of craving running through your system, that will propel you into another birth. And once you're born, you're going to get sick, you're going to get old, and you're going to die. So craving is the cause of aging, quite literally, because craving is the cause of birth. And this is terribly metaphysical. And for Buddhists who don't, or practitioners of meditation, or Buddhist meditation who don't, who are not convinced of this theory of rebirth, We'll say, well, you know, that, that may, may or may not be the case. I don't know. But that, I think, is the only way that you can make sense of this claim that craving is the cause of old age. One of my Tibetan teachers used to say, no head, no headache. <laughs> if you want to stop pain and suffering, then stop getting born. It seems fairly obvious. <laughs> but if you don't believe in rebirth, or you don't really 
take that to be such a terribly important thing, and you're more concerned with how to live in this world, then the whole idea of craving giving rise to aging doesn't really make any sense, except in this rather psychological re-reading of the text. So I think we have a problem here. Not only that, but I think another... Um, the, 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 this, this doctrine of craving is the cause of suffering also seems to be contradicted by other uh, very basic teachings in Buddhism that actually seem to suggest the opposite that suffering is in fact the cause of craving and Martin yesterday was talking about how um, when we have contact and that gives rise to feeling of pleasure or displeasure that gives rise to grasping which, is, which the te technical word is craving. Again, tana, thirst. So it's rather odd in a way when you look at the definition of the first noble truth, birth, aging, sickness, death, getting what you don't want and so on, and then the Buddha concludes that passage by saying these five aggregates are dukkha. This system we are in is dukkha. Our body-mind complex is dukkha. And when we experience that, and the 12 links, which I'm not going to go into, uh, describe this in a kind of step-by-step -step way, we have consciousness, we have name and form, or our involvement in the world, we have senses that are constantly being impacted by that world, that's called contact, that generates a feeling of pleasure or a feeling of pain that then triggers grasping or craving. Craving for what is, to have what is pleasant, craving to get rid of what is unpleasant. Craving is therefore described in this other classical doctrine not as the origin of that experience but as the consequence of it. Craving, in other words, is our response to dukkha. So in what sense does it mean, therefore, to say that craving is the origin of dukkha? I think there's an enormous contradiction there. And I think it makes far more sense in terms of the four truths if we then take out this metaphysical doctrine, craving is the origin of suffering, just put it to one side. To me, it's pure metaphysics. Put it to one side and then look at the text in, with, without that assumption. And then we have, this is suffering, it can be fully known. This is craving, it can be let go of. This is the stopping of craving, it can be experienced. And this is the path, it can be cultivated. In other words, it's the knowing of suffering, the real knowing of suffering, and that's what we're going to look into, that allows us to get to a point in our lives where we stop grasping. We stop craving, we stop clinging, not because we're somehow suppressing it or denying it, but because we have undermined its rationale, its raison d'être. A very simple example. Let's say a, a person who you're very close to but have had a lot of problems with in the past, let's say a parent, uh, dies. <laughs> That person dies. Now, 
on that person's death, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, all of our petty uh, likes and dislikes and frustrations and irritations kind of go out of the window. When we're confronted with that person's corpse, when that person no longer is in this world anymore, when death has hit home, it's what almost invariably happens, at least this has been my experience, is that that whole grasping attitude of liking, disliking evaporates. And we encounter that person who's no longer with us in their totality. And we recognize and we experience the, that sense of loss. We encounter what is common to us in our humanity. But however much we liked or didn't like that person, in their death, they are bringing home to us the truth of the human condition, which is what the Buddha describes in the first truth. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. When we begin to um, pay more and more attention to others, to ourselves, to the world, in terms of its um, impermanence, its fragility, its vulnerability, its ephemerality, and when that actually occurs in death, say, our perspective on life is, at least for a while, transformed. One of the strange things about being around death is although it is often very tragic and painful and sad, it also brings us to a greater depth with one another. We have all of our little rituals of somehow obscuring that, but nonetheless there is a shared sense of, oh my God, this is what life is about. And if we could live more and more from such a perspective, we wouldn't have to somehow suppress or get rid of craving. It just doesn't happen so much. It's no longer really so relevant. It's no longer that great um, urge or urgency that it had been up to that point. We somehow see through it. It somehow strikes us as trivial. But in the face of such suffering, I should be only concerned with getting what I like, getting rid of what I don't like. As the Buddha says, obsessively indulging in this and that. That's his definition of craving. Wallowing in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that. That's craving. It's a wonderful definition. And it's there in the first sermon. <coughs> It's the same, for example, if you, when we switch on the TV and then there's been an earthquake in some Chile or Haiti or wherever. At such moments stop us in our tracks, as we say. We suddenly are interrupted in our everyday pursuit of gratification and our everyday uh, irritations and frustrations and so forth and so on. The mind stops. When we see starving children in sub-Saharan Africa. So dukkha, when we really attend to it fully, when we open our hearts and our minds to dukkha, that is what brings craving to a stop. Whereas normally, craving is the way we cope with our everyday anxieties and frustrations and 
things we want, things we don't want, things we like, things we don't like. It drives, it sort of pushes the momentum of craving. But when we hit a certain depth, which often comes somehow as an interruption to that everyday momentum of, of, of grasping, suddenly the grasping doesn't really have a ground anymore. And that then opens up the possibility of responding to our world from another perspective, from another point of view. And that's called entering the stream, the Eightfold Path. A appropriate vision, thinking, speaking, acting, working. We tr the, the, the Eightfold Path is really an account or a sketch of how we can perhaps start to live from a deeper a perspective of depth. I think for a lot of our lives, we kind of skim over the surface of things. We don't fully appreciate or um, embrace the human condition that we are in. But I'm going to stop there and return to this theme um, this afternoon and look also very much at this idea of stream entry which you've probably heard about if you've been involved in the Theravada tradition or the Vipassana school, and try to understand what that means in terms of this particular take on the Four Noble Truths.